One of the major shifts was a refocusing from the end result to how you got to that end result, particularly when it comes to things like a recurring revenue stream. You're more interested in where it has been and where it is going. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd. I'm a four-time author, including the book Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stampley. And joining me today is Dave Storer, Vice President and Controller at Construct Connect. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here. Great. Well, we're excited to have you here. And if you could start off by telling us a little bit about what you do and your background. Sure. So a controller and vice president for a company called Construct Connect, headquartered here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we are a profitable, mid-sized operating business underneath the area of Roper Technologies, a publicly traded company on NYSE. There are some basic questions that we always ask in the podcast that our audience is interested in. If you could Start by telling us about your team structure and the size and the composition of the people that you have in your area. Yeah, so the way uh, we've organized the accounting function is by business process flow, probably not uncommon. So we, I tend to think about it as you know, purchase to pay, order to cash, hire to pay, and then record to report. And so in simple terms, when I try to explain it uh, to folks, I say, well, it's the money coming in the door, the money going out the door, and then us accountants put those into buckets called reports. Mm-hmm. The team is 16 folks. So we've got it broken down, a couple of people in purchase to pay, five people in order to cash, four in record to report or you know, really monthly close, two sort of focus on controllership, internal controls, that includes myself, two in the hire to pay or which would be the payroll area. And then I've got uh, one individual who sort of handles a lot of projects and automation and that type of thing. Are all your employees remote at this point? They are. We're technically you know, fully remote. We still do have our, our offices, but you know, we've been operating remotely and very effectively at doing so for the last two years. That's great. And how long does it take to do your monthly close typically? We are fully complete by business day three. Typically, we're getting numbers out for review by our financial planning team by end of day two. Now, bear in mind, we are a subsidiary of a a public company. So they're doing the bulk of the consolidation work and that type of thing. But we do have eight sort of business units within what we're doing. Okay. That, that's a good point that I should have thought of. That's great. And then it was very interesting. You also mentioned board reporting related to SAS, if you could touch on that. Sure. So uh, primarily for our business, we are, um, you know, a, a real software as a service fo- subscription-based focus. So probably 
85 to 90 percent of what we're selling is on a, a repeating subscription basis. So with that comes a lot of you know specific and unique reporting. So we think about things like our backlog, what bookings did we have for the month? What is our subscriber count and how's it changing over time? Things like what's our recurring revenue? And that revenue stream versus you know non-recurring or non-repeating transactional type. We also look at things because you know a lot of our costs are coming from sales related costs. We spend a good deal of time on customer acquisition cost, customer lifetime value, and then again a, a lot of emphasis on churn. So you know you get the folks in the door and how do you how do you keep them? What just broadly speaking, but specifically for your company, what sort of churn rate are you sh- shooting for? Is there an industry benchmark? Yeah, we probably look at somewhere in the range of 82 to 85% in terms of what we're doing. We are serving the pre-construction industry, which is going to include a lot of trade contractors, also general contractors and you know building product manufacturers. But trade contractors can vary from size from you know, pretty robust and complex construction companies down to what we like to call chuck in a truck, you know, one, one <laughs> two person operation. Sure. And mostly we're selling an informational product. So, you know, our churn may be a little bit you know, higher naturally because of that. But in terms of, you know, from a SaaS product perspective, anywhere in the 80 to 90 plus percent range is where you want to be. Years ago, I had a small tax practice on the side. I did taxes for a guy who had a very successful remodeling and building business. And actually, he tried to automate it. This is probably 15 years ago. And tried to create automation on his own. And he used it for himself and never turned it into a full-time business. But it was just him and his wife. And he really embraced automation, which is the only way he told me that he could really be efficient. And so all of his subcontractors and everybody else were on this system. So it was interesting when I saw your company. Sure. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, in terms of the construction industry as a whole, you know, it not entirely surprising, but it's a, a little slower to adopt, you know, some of the technologies. And one of the major things that that we've invested in in recent years has been around services. And, you know, it's still there's a lot of folks out there that are, you know, pencil and paper and they're drawing it out and, and that works and that's great for, for some folks, but we find that to be, you know, an area where we can really add a lot of value. Uh-huh. That's, yeah, that's the truth. Boy, I know I've got friends who are out there doing pencil and paper and they're good craftspeople, but they're, mm-hmm. you know, the business side, they struggle. Yep. Tell us about your tech stack. So our tech stack, you know, we don't lean heavily on you know what I would call the traditional ERP. What we found is that a lot of the systems we employ, they're all very well known, but the ability to transfer data from one step to the next is become a lot simpler. And so from an order to cash, which for our, a software as a service business like ours is you know, very critical. It's a very significant business process. We're using a CRM tool, Salesforce. I'm sure Uh folks are very familiar with that. We pass that along to a subscription management tool called Zora, who's handling not just the invoicing, but what I like to call the subscription management aspects. And the way I usually try to describe that to folks is you not only have to think about sending that first transactional invoice, 
but the robustness and the reminder to just say, oh, okay, you're coming up for your annual renewal or you got your quarterly payment and just having that very, you know, already set up and automated, that's a tool that does a lot of that heavy lifting for us. And then that information spills into our general ledger package, which is Dynamics 365. And you had further down your list that you sent me in advance, UKG you also use. That's right. Yeah. For hire to pay, we're using UKG, both from a HRAS perspective of capturing the initial information, but also for doing you know, monthly payroll, biweekly payroll. Great. Great. Okay. Those are, that's been great. I'm going to shift gears and to a set of custom questions. Could you tell us about your journey as a financial leader and what led you to this point in your career? Sure. Yeah, I had probably started off in a traditional manner that maybe a lot of the folks tuning in might be familiar with. I did came out of school and did the big four, in this case, Ernst & Young, for about seven years, got to manager role. And, you know, it was pretty common and probably still is to look into industry. And you know, I had a great opportunity to come out and get into my first controller role. And pretty quickly, that actually led to the CFO role. It was during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And we actually had my CFO and my CEO at the company get promoted and it left an opening for me and it was great. And at the time, you know, I think I had the IQ to handle the job, but you probably struggled a little bit with the you know, emotional intelligence. I was 29 and that was just a lot to handle. So I had a bit of a, a you know, a career reset with that. You know, I worked, I kind of pivoted over to some technical accounting. I went in to do some consulting and then that led me back to you know, my first sort of software as a service business, probably about eight years ago. And, you know, I just have fallen in love with, you know, with that model and, you know, with the things that come with that model. That's interesting. Seven years of big four. I did big four at KPMG back in the late eighties, early nineties. I was only there three years, but seven years is a long time. I mean, <laughs> there, there's a, dog there's years. a dog years element to dog that. I'm years. sure that you could calculate. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a ton of experience. I always tell people I learned more in those three years than I have before or since. It was amazing. How did your purview as a financial leader shift when you began working with the subscription model in SAS? Sure. Yeah. I think one of the major shifts was a refocusing from the end result to how you got to that end result, particularly when it comes to things like a recurring revenue stream, you're more interested in where it has been and where it is going. And so while we are you know, required to report our revenue for the month, it's kind of more of a trailing indicator. And so what we're really interested in is, you know, what were the things that caused the revenue to to increase and what were the things that caused the revenue to decrease. So a lot of you know focus on that and then on the quality of that revenue. Is it being is it coming from recurring revenue, which you know has a ongoing value, or is it non-recurring? Is it you know selling a add-on product that doesn't repeat? Right. I'm interested in that because I'm a marketer in SaaS. Do you guys have a breakout or or estimates that you might know about in terms of Earning sales from organic sales efforts, upselling you already mentioned, do you have any comment on how that breaks out? Sure. Yeah, that, that is back to that 
the nature of the the revenue or really the sales and you know that's why we also you know I, as a as a controller i'm actually spending a good deal of time thinking about bookings and the nature of those bookings so you right off the bat we are looking at you know how much of the bookings that we've had for the month are coming from new sales how much is coming from you know recurring sales and within that new sales you know what are uh, some of the sources and that's been a big part of what we've done and so what i found not just with you know, software as a service but just generally i found the more upstream that you can focus in the business processes the more success you have downstream you know i've had situations we've had our accounts receivable specialists almost feeling a little bit trapped in their ability to manage from you know, how far downstream, but when we go to work with the sales team, when we go to work with sales enablement and, you know, even farther than that, we find we can make, you know, kind of breakthrough performance. So one initiative that we've worked on is really trying to capture information about leads and lead source, which can include, you know, is it coming from pay-per-click and then the conversion of that lead. So we've really looked at it from a funnel perspective. And as part of that's really given us a lot of insight relative to those marketing efforts and being able to connect them from the marketing effort all the way down to the revenue. And that's something that, that you, I think we've taken a lot of pride in. That's great. That's exactly what I was getting at. What in, and this was interesting because we mentioned before we got on line with you that you were the first person who's really brought up an online employee handbook in detail, which I've been preaching for years as a college professor and instructor for years, and I'm so glad you embraced this. So I'll ask the question, what impact has the inclusion of an online employee handbook document made in your organization? Transformational. It's been, you know, I've been doing this for 22 years and it would be on my probably top three lists in terms of, you know, things that I've done or been involved with that had made sort of breakthrough impact in our organization, not just in how we work, but like where we work and the quality of life and, and all those things. And primarily the concept that I was able to, as a controller, get behind, you know, I've had three instances where I was being brought in as a controller to sort of wrangle disparate either business units or processes or geographies and get them all singing the same tune. Well, the first couple of times I did that, you know, I, I really leaned heavily on the relationship building and on, you know, having a coalition built. And those are very good things. And I still think that helps. But what would happen is we would you would get some kind of process written down, we put it on a shelf and nobody would look at it. Again. Right. And this flips it on its head where it is daily, it is, you know, co-developed. We have from the lowest person on the team to the highest person on the team in there daily documenting and not necessarily trying to get it to perfect, right. but to capture the key information exchanges. And so you, it is definitely built upon itself where now we've got 
I think 722 articles across the business and built out our you know, search capabilities where it is really our documentation first. And that's where people go. And it's had a exponential impact on getting good process, getting policy communicated, getting compliance with that policy and innovating. You know, one of the things we do is we take the information we're writing down in the guidebook and we have somebody else go through it, look at it and say, oh, you know, I see a potential innovation right here. And so it's, it's just been a game changer for us. That's so interesting. See, that's an aspect I would have never thought of, that you have somebody go through it and say, here's an area for innovation. I would have never thought about it. I had always sold it or tried to get people to embrace it by, it, it does two things also. It removes confusion about how to perform a task and it makes cross training so much easier because now everybody's on the same page. What do you think your most complex few procedures are? Is one of them payroll? That's a guess. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's a good guess. I would tell you that probably the one that we've, worked on since I arrived here and that it's a continuing journey. And I think there's a lot of opportunity, particularly with the, the tools that are out there these days is around purchase to pay. And in particular, you know, we started off with a, hey, here's an invoice, please pay it type of situation. And from that, we've built a lot of, you know, forward thinking, forward approval and good commercial and business dialogue. The guidebook has played a good role in helping not only in lay down the delegation of authority, uh -huh. so who can approve what, but extending that out to a diagram that people can use. We call it our purchasing navigator. And it's a one-stop shop. Okay, I can go here. I know to do this, do this. And we make it very readable, very easy for you know, a layperson. They can go down multiple levels, down to the task level as to what's happening, but they can also stay you know, at, a, at a higher level. We have frequently asked questions and our guidebook documentation has played the biggest role in getting the employee buy-in of right. our policies and processes. The area we're investing in next is really looking hard at the, we've done a lot of this work. What are the actual tools that can help facilitate it? A lot of what we've built has been, you know, do it yourself. But I think that set us up such that the organization is ready for those type of tools in a way that we wouldn't have been if we didn't done it two years ago. Right, and it, and it makes your company so much more valuable because now you've got a recipe book and how you run your business. Yep. And so many people don't. So many people don't. I, I think that was particularly interesting when I saw it. I'm flipping pages here. What type of clients did you work on in public accounting? Did you, was it a variety or did you specialize? It was a variety. I, I kind of jokingly would say, you know, I worked with or for every company in the tri-state area, that being, <laughs> I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, so right. Cincinnati, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, but it was a pretty diverse background for me, you know, from manufacturing to technology to, you know, services. And, you know, I had a second uh, chance to go back and, and work with a smaller firm. And from there, I got to work with a lot of you know, smaller businesses, growth companies, and types of things like that. So I've seen a lot of things during that time. And were you on the audit staff? I was, yes. Audit. Okay. Another thing is, and 
we alluded to this at the beginning of the call before we got online. I, I have a friend who was on a similar path to you in that he was the controller of a manufacturing company that was bought by GE. And he talked about when he, when he was at GE as a CFO of a sub, it was very challenging to work for GE. What was your experience working for GE's financial group? Sure. Yeah, I had a great experience, but I also had probably similar to him. It's a very steep learning curve. You know, I think the model, certainly the time I was there, there was a lot of folks that came in initially, whether it be from internships or they have a very well-developed internal audit staff that's it's probably a little bit you know internal audit on steroids you know it's very it's operational type of things like that so i worked with a lot of people that had grown up in that environment and as you can imagine with the vastness and the size of things you navigating that was was challenging coming in as an experienced hire but it was also very rewarding. The area I was, I got involved with was within their uh, aviation business and even within that, their avionics. So, you know, the computers, the brains of, of, the, of the aircraft. So we were you know, very forward on, you know, the growth part of things. We're doing a lot of acquisitions, setting up joint ventures. So I had a really great time getting in and setting things up from the start and learning <laughs> the ways to do it so that it lasted and also learning some of the experience of, hey, let's set something up so that it, you know we can get it working, but it doesn't have to be perfect right out of the gate mm-hmm. and we'll build and we'll you know kind of allow yourself a little bit of grace in terms of you know in terms of setting things up on that front. Interesting. That's interesting. Do you have, regarding Sarbanes-Oxley, do you, because I know you work for an SEC registrant, do you have to deal with much of that or is that something that's dictated from your parent company? We have our you know, requirements in terms of it's it's a little bit of a push down. There are uh, certain defined controls and things like that, that that kind of serve as the minimum baseline that are tested annually as part of Sarbanes-Oxley. We've also have representation letters that and non-financial dis- financial disclosures that are inwardly facing. And so we ut- utilize a lot of that. One of the things that I did coming into here, um, because my background was I was working on Sarbanes-Oxley when it came out. I was in public accounting at the time. So I had all the, you know, the fun of of standing that up for two, two public companies. But with that, I brought in, you know, a, our own sort of internal control checklist. And I run it in a way that's very similar to, you know, the broader Sarbanes-Oxley effort. And even though it's for internal consumption, I'm able to get insight into on a quarterly basis, whether our broad set of controls are working effectively or not, because we're not only asking people to sign off on these things, but we're also saying, give us an example of the evidence that you would provide. And so that's been really helpful in terms of setting up and maintaining a, a control structure, even if you're not directly the one that has to you know, sign off on the, the SOC mm-hmm. certification. Yeah. Yeah. I know some people that were at the very forefront of dealing with Sarbanes-Oxley right when it came out. And a friend of mine said, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I've got recruiters calling me every day because no one knows how to do it well, and it's a valuable skill, but it was very challenging for him. That's right. Um, yeah, and I, I would say on that valuable skill side, you know, I 
I came out of school and I felt like I had a pretty good handle on the substantive aspects of accounting, debits and credits, and what's the end result. The going through the Sarbanes-Oxley the first time, even though it was probably highly inefficient, gave me a really good sense of how to identify risks and controls in process. And I thought that was you know, really useful. One of the things that, you know, I've, I've carried that with me for several years. And one of the things that, that I've had experience over the probably the last three years that has felt of the same weight as learning the substantive stuff, learning the control stuff has been really taking time to understand data and the data flows. How is it, where's data coming from and where's it going? And that has been, you know, kind of teaching a, an old dog new tricks or sure. something I did not expect this late in my career as a new way of thinking. And that's been really, really helpful as well in terms of my development. Yeah, I mean, the last person we interviewed had your experience where it was a shift from being not just an accountant, but being more of an operations person and a manager and a strategic thinker, which I think is, is what's happening to a lot of people who are succeeding. Because as you move up, that's the value you really offer, I think. What is, what in terms of the business itself, what have you seen change during COVID? How did COVID impact the construction industry industry broadly and your business specifically? Sure. Well, I think the construction industry broadly, it was like in a lot of industries, a shock to the system. And for, you know, a broadly speaking, an industry that is very focused on new starts and, you know, what's coming down the pipeline, it, suddenly changed to the dynamic from a one where a lot of what we would get as feedback was, I just can't find the workers. I can't find the people willing to do the work and shifting from that, how do I staff all the work that's out there and available to one where folks are for the first time in a long time, scrambling to find the work. And that's bounced back a bit, you know, I think with in line with the general economy. But what that did for us specifically, we one of the, the major value propositions Construct Connect offers is, is leads and you know and bidding. So we're helping you find not only find the work, but find the best work. And we've got the you know the plans and specifications all kind of sitting there as content that's that's digestible. And so we make that pre-construction you know, so much more easier. And so when we started to see a flip over to a more of a, you know, a chasing of supply, right. it was a boom for our business. So we grew very, very much in 2020 and in 2021. And, you know, for, for us, I think it was as much about handling unexpected growth in an environment that is a bit counter cyclical to what other people might be experiencing. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that embracing automation to, because, at least in my experience, a lot of these people are operating on very thin margins, and embracing automation helps that as well. That's interesting. Well, Dave, this has been great. I'm going to ask the question that we always ask at the end, if I could flip through my papers and find it. Here we go. If you had one, had to give one piece of advice to modern finance leaders, what would it be? 
So I've thought about this a, a bit and I would say hiring curiosity and tenacity. And I, and I think that's the best way to meet the changing way in which we work. You know, I, I've seen a pretty significant amount of change in terms of the, the tools and the expectations and you know what we are doing on a day-to-day basis as you know as accountants and controllers and really finance people more broadly and by you know looking for those folks that are really curious and engaged and interested in that that can be a, a big element when you're in such a high degree of change. You've got people that are self-motivated. They're looking at, oh, wow, this could be really interesting. This could be you know, really neat. And so that has been, you know, for the folks that, that we've had like that has been really a, a helpful aspect. The other thing we see is that tenacity. And, you know, I, I think it's captured best. I had a, a accounting manager who's actually gone on been promoted into our data analysis team and you know she always would say as hand her the next unstructured thing it would be okay i'm willing to do this i'm willing to roll up my sleeves and put it on a workbook and you know get it there but i don't want to live with it and so that tenacity to 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 (laughs) go in dive in take the you know unstructured information bring it into organized data build out sort of efficient data flows and then automate it so you can get the insight. That is where we're headed. And, you know, I would say even so much so that we've been having conversations recently about what skills are we looking for as we think from organizing around business processes to organizing around, you know, how do we set up and structure the work such that you were handing it off for automation opportunity. Yeah, that's it. It's complete automation. I don't know how anybody is going to survive without it in this in the economy we're in now. Well, Dave, I want to thank you for being here. This has been great. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Ken. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.